as well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage and you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the political party. Oh boy, what an episode. Malcolm Rifkind. A proper big beast. Um, and we talk about so much his time in the major government, in the Thatcher government. Um, the major and Thatcher's reflections on him, his reflections on them. The time he almost got killed in Northern Ireland. His uh, view of uh, Scotland and the Union and his role as Secretary of State for Scotland, which back then had so much more power. And he was effectively running Scotland pre- prior to devolution. This is... I, you know what, I could have done an... I wish I'd almost done the kind of Rifkin files where we did an hour on each position that he had because it's really not... And I know this is an absolute cliche on this show that I always say it's not enough. And I always then say, I know, I always say that, but it really wasn't. But with this, I was like, man, there's no way we're going to cover everything. You just can't. So I kind of hope I can get Malcolm back on at some point. But, oh, my word. i tell you what was fascinating. And I obviously love researching each guest. And whenever I book them, I'm like, oh, man, I can't wait to interview them. And you immediately start thinking of things. But reading Major and Thatcher's autobiographies, to me, that feels, particularly Thatcher, feels like a very, very long time ago. And I appreciate if you're older than me listening to this, it may feel like yesterday. Um, but that feels like a really different time compared to where politics is now. I mean, the Blair era feels like a different time, let alone Major and Thatcher. But Thatcher feels like a real far point in history, really, relative to where we are now. So reading Thatcher's book about Malcolm Rifkin and the things she says about him, the things that John Major says about him, and then all of a sudden you're talking to them. You know, that's the great thrill of this is. And it's the same with the Heseltine and the Clark episodes, you know. And it's great to have people at different stages of their career and life because obviously last week talking to Alison McGovern about mental and physical health things that are very modern conversations to be having with a politician and then this week Malcolm Rifkind talking about what Scotland was like before devolution which I know wasn't that long ago but still oh my word um so this is just a real treat uh, I, I called Malcolm a big beast and um, I began by asking him whether he's Comfortable with phrases like Big Beast or Grandy. I wish you guys would realise the worst thing that anybody wants to be called as a grandee, not only because it's normally not how they feel about themselves, but actually it's an indication to say you're an old fart. <laughs> 
Well, that's, I mean, I suppose you could reflect on whether you thought that was a good or a bad thing. From a previous age who occasionally reappears to pontificate. So I don't think it's a compliment, but I am resigned to the inevitability. And it's, it's better to be insulted than ignored. So on balance, it's okay with me. But do you think of yourself as a... I suppose elder statesman has the word elder in it, but do you feel, uh, you know, one of the few, uh, as one of the few people that served as a minister throughout that whole period of 79 to, to 97, do you feel uh, you're of a, of a certain status perhaps in, a, in, in an elite group? We had a remarkable experience then because there were four of us, Ken Clark, myself, uh, Tony Newton and Linda Chalker, who were the, and Paddy Mayhew, sorry, I'm forgetting Paddy. Uh, they were the only people who survived the whole 18 years of Thatcher and John Major. Uh, not because everybody else was sacked, but some retired, you know, some lost their seats in uh, general elections and whatever. So you actually have to go back to Lord Palmerston, not as prime minister, but way back in the 1820s, when he was in the government of Lord Liverpool, who was prime minister for 22 years. Uh, Palmerston, we overtook Lloyd George, who had previously had the record, not for the length of time as a minister, it's uninterrupted time as a minister. Churchill was a minister for more years than I was, but it kept being interrupted. And when we overtook Lloyd George, we, we didn't realize we had. The chief whip told us, you have now created a record that goes back to 1820 to be beaten. So the four or five of us went out and had a special dinner and it was such a good dinner, I can't even remember where it was held. <laughs> but it is a remarkable achievement, isn't it? It was, yeah. a, it was a very long time in office. Well, it, you know, it was a remarkable achievement not to be sacked by Margaret Thatcher. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you tried to continue with our services, but you know, there's a heck of a lot of luck in politics, as every politician knows. Most of us will admit it. Some say it's all due to their great brilliance, but it was partly because we kept winning. Well, mainly because we kept winning general elections. You know, Labour Party was going through not as bad a mess as Corbyn produced. But they were unelectable, effectively, um, under Neil Kinnock and Michael Foot and so forth. Uh, and so we kept winning elections. And of course, I was a, a young, I wasn't an old grandee at that time. I was a young upstart. I mean, I was only 31 or 32 when I became a minister. And I was 51 when I stopped being one. So my kids, you know, had a pretty bizarre childhood. I mean, Hugo, who you know, my son, uh, Times columnist, um, he was, I think, uh, three when I became a minister and 21 when I ceased being one. And his sister Caroline, you know, two or three years older, had the same experience. So, you know, the, the fact that he ended up relatively respectable uh, and without too many hang-ups uh, was itself uh, quite a tribute to his qualities and those of his sister. It's actually incredible to think that then in 1997, at the end of that long stretch in power, you were only in your early 50s. I mean, if you look at party leaders, uh, you know, not just in this country, but around the world, 51 would, would still make you a young politician. Well, that, that is, well, you're absolutely right. But of course, you know, no one knows what the future holds because what in practice happened was Tony Blair won the election and he kept winning elections. He won uh, two or three in a row and then Gordon Brown took over. So it wasn't 18 years, but it was 12 years. So I was already in, uh, in my 60s uh, when uh, there was next a conservative uh, government. And by that stage, I'd lost my seat in, in 97 because I was a Scottish conservative. We wiped out in Wales and Scotland and the north of England. Uh, so uh, eight years to me didn't seem long. But of course, by the time I returned, um, uh, as far as there's been such a turnover uh, that you know, half the conservative members in the House of Commons when I came back and a member of Kensington and Chelsea of all extraordinary places for a Scottish MP to end up, 
uh, you know, they saw me uh, as something from an earlier age, which in a sense was right. You had a breath. I must tell you, actually, I mean, Kensington Chelsea was the most extraordinary constituency to be selected for, because in those days, it was South Kensington and Chelsea. Overwhelmed, my majority was something like 16,000. And I remember vividly when I became the uh, candidate, uh, one of my new party colleagues from the association in Kensington said, you do realize being the MP for this constituency is very different to being the MP for any other constituency. So I said, what do you mean the size of the majority? He said, well, it's not just that, it's what flows from that. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, let me put it this way. On a Thursday night, every other member of parliament leaves London and goes to his second home in somewhere in his constituency in the country. In your case, all your constituents leave London on a Thursday night. <laughs> in the country. And it was a slight exaggeration, but there was enough truth in it uh, for it to be a pretty powerful point. Very different to your experience in Edinburgh Pentlands, which you served uh, from 74. Uh, to... I right as Pentlands. I was once speaking in London when I was the MP for Edinburgh. In the Pentlands, the Pentland Hills on the southwest of the constituency it's named after. The chairman in a, somewhere in London never heard of the Pentland Hills, got somewhat confused and said, ladies and gentlemen, we're delighted this evening to have as our speaker, Mr. Rifkin, who is, of course, the member of parliament for Penthouse. <laughs> I said, I rather wished I was. <laughs> Imagine me and the MP for Penthouse. I mean, that would have been a quite a different sort of experience. A very different sort of experience, yeah. I, I wonder, given how far polit Scottish politics has moved on, particularly since 1997, yeah. but even more so since 1974, and having served as Margaret Thatcher's Secretary of State for Scotland, the role of being Secretary of State for Scotland when you were doing the job, when effectively Scotland was run from Whitehall, no devolution at all compared to what it would be now, I mean, they're almost two completely different positions. I must just correct you on one very important detail. You said when Scotland was run from Whitehall. I remember Margaret Thatcher uh, once coming to Dover House, which was the Scottish office in Whitehall, where Secretary of State for Scotland had his uh, office in London. And she, it's a marvellous building, which uh, Lord Melbourne once uh, lived in. Lord Byron used to visit Lady Caroline Lamb to have his uh, own affair in that very building. And she looked round and she said, this is a marvellous building. I've never been here before. This is a wonderful building. And I couldn't resist it. I said, you do realise, Prime Minister, this is my branch office. <laughs> its main office is St Andrew's House. Was St Andrew's House in Edinburgh, where the First Minister now operates uh, from. I'm sure her office is there. And so Margaret Thatcher looked at me as if to say, I've always had doubts about you. <laughs> days before devolution. But the serious point, it's worth remembering this, that the Secretary of State for Scotland, the same good for the Welsh Secretary um, as well at that time, because we, there wasn't devolution, whatever the rights and wrongs, the Secretary of State for Scotland really was a very powerful minister in Scotland. You know, uh, you were a member of the cabinet, uh, but you had a virtu virtually freedom to use your budget uh, pretty well as you wished, because as uh, Secretary of State for Scotland, I had the responsibility in Scotland for education, for housing, for law and order, for transport, for agriculture, for a range of other issues. And I had the freedom uh, within the total that had been agreed with the Treasury, uh, if I wanted to spend more on education and less on health or vice versa, uh, uh, that was a decision I could take. And I didn't have to get permission from my colleagues or from the Treasury or from the Cabinet on, on that front. So that gave you a great deal of freedom. And it also meant my very first ministerial job in government, that job when she first became prime minister, made me a, a parliamentary undersecretary, very junior minister in the Scottish office. 
And normally a parliamentary undersecretary is a bag carrier, you know, you don't have real power. But because of the sheer breadth of responsibilities, George Unger, who was then Secretary of State, uh, each of his junior ministers effectively ran a department. So, I mean, in Scotland, I was called the Minister for Home Affairs and the Environment. And although I had to clear the big issues with George Younger, my Secretary of State, as a parliamentary undersecretary in my early 30s, tremendous experience one got because you had real responsibility and the buck on many of these issues stopped you know, with you. So uh, as a learning curve, there was no substitute for it. It sounds as if though the role of Secretary of State back then, pre-devolution, was almost a sort of quasi-first ministerial role, was that, in effect, you were, you were running the country? Well, it was a combination of the First Minister, as we have now, and the, we still have a Secretary of State for Scotland, of course, who deals with the United Kingdom end uh, of uh, the issues that are not devolved. Um, so having said all that, but the big, there was nevertheless a huge difference between then and now in political terms. Uh, not if you were a Labour Secretary of State for Scotland, because in those days the Labour Party had a majority in Scotland. They were the dominant party, and so the Secretary of State had a, uh, not just a constitutional legitimacy, but a political legitimacy. Uh, if you were a Conservative, even when the Tory party was doing well in Scotland, out of what we then had 71 seats in Scotland altogether, and if the Tories had 20 or 23, that was doing well, and sometimes it was less. So the Nationalists, obviously, and to some degree the Labour Party, would always argue you have no legitimacy, you, you, know, you weren't elected in Scotland, which coming from a nationalist was not unreasonable because they wanted a separate Scotland. We always used to warn the Labour Party that they were playing with fire when they used that argument, because essentially, of course you had a legitimacy, we were part of a United Kingdom with one parliament at that time, so you couldn't have a different uh, party complexion for different ministers simply because of what number of seats they had in that part of the UK. People talk about the union being in jeopardy now and, and on a knife edge and the possibility of Indy Ref 2 and what might happen. Back then, when you were Secretary of State for Scotland, could you see the storm clouds gathering? Did you ever think we'd get in 2020 to the, to the place we are now? Well, I don't think I thought that we were going to get to where we are now. That's a perfectly fair point. But I came into the House of Commons for the first time in February 1974. And that's when the Nationalists had their first major breakthrough. Uh, when they went from, I think, one MP for the Western Isles, and they went up to eight or nine MPs in the February election. And you remember there was a second general election in 1974 in October, and when they went up to something like 12 seats, which compared to where they'd been before was a fantastic change. They got 30% of the vote then, you know, which was a heck of a lot of votes as well. Uh, but most, most of their seats at that time were at the expense of the Conservatives. They were in the northeast of Scotland and parts of the Highlands and Islands. The Labour Party remained totally dominant, apart from, I think, one by-election they lost in Hamilton to Winnie Ewing. Uh, the Labour Party were not uh, at risk. And so the Nationalists were called Tartan Tories. Can you imagine? Uh, they didn't like being called Tartan Tories, but you know, they represented constituencies that basically had been previously uh, returning Tory MPs. Now, when it got to 1979, when Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister, in that election, people forget, led by Margaret Thatcher, not the most popular person in Scotland, uh, we ousted virtually every nationalist from these seats in the north of Scotland, and they all returned Tory MPs. So that was Thatcher's first election, and, and she did pretty well north of the border as well as south. There's a passage, if you don't mind me quoting, Malcolm, from, from John Major's autobiography that I found earlier today, where he, described, where he describes you. He says, The Scotland Secretary Malcolm Rifkind was always difficult and usually threatened to resign unless he got a better settlement. 
I once asked him at the beginning of a meeting whether he wanted to resign now or wait until we'd finished. I think I'll wait, he grinned, knowing even then he would only settle at the last moment. Scotland was well served by a series of Scottish secretaries who turned public expenditure negotiations into an art form. Do you, well, you recognise Major's characterisation of you? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I never threatened to resign. I mean, that, but I never excluded the possibility. You know, it depended. I, I, I needed to get a settlement in Scotland, not that necessarily was everything I wanted. I needed to get a settlement in Scotland that I could defend with the Scottish public as being fair. They might not agree with me, but at least that I believe was fair under the circumstances. So, I mean, actually what happened at the very beginning, I think what John Major may have been remembering, when he, before he became Chancellor or Prime Minister, obviously, um, uh, Chief Secretary, when, when uh, I first became Secretary, um, Secretary of State for Scotland, and I was the youngest member of the cabinet, uh, I suddenly was faced with an ultimatum from the cabinet, primarily the Treasury, and the Prime Minister for a, a unilateral cut in the Scottish budget of something about, I can't remember the exact sum, but it was something approaching a billion pounds, uh, maybe 700 million. Because remember, this is 30 years ago. That was a lot of money, a huge amount of money. And I said, I, I refused. And I said, that, look, you know, uh, I can't accept that. I said, I can accept a, a reduction in government spending if you've examined all government departments and some get more and some get less and I may lose out, that's fair. At least I can say that there's been a proper, serious approach, but to be picked out as one department, uh, simply because you guys have always thought Scotland gets too much. Well, if you believe that, uh, let's have a needs assessment study of all government departments and we'll see what the outcome is. And it, uh, it, this argument went on for several months privately. We didn't leak in those days. It was never leaked. And I eventually ended up before the Star Chamber, which was the final court of appeal, chaired by Willie Whitelaw and two other cabinet ministers. Uh, and it was, of course, a hanging court. I mean, you never actually uh, won an appeal there. And Willie Whitelaw said at the end of the, having listened very politely to me, uh, they, all three of them concluded that they didn't agree with me. It didn't come as a surprise at all. So he said, well, I'm sure you'll now go ahead and carry out these cuts. Uh, and so and I will report accordingly to the prime minister. Uh, and I had discussed beforehand with my officials what to do if that arose. And they said, you have one last chance, minister. So I said, what is that? And so I adopted their advice. I said, well, uh, to Willie Whitelaw, uh, I said, if you are going to report to the prime minister your conclusion, uh, you will have to report also my dissent from it. Now that might not sound very hard, uh, threatening, but there was a silence. They were, he was very, very angry with me because if a minister dissented, that meant the issue had to be raised at the full cabinet. And if anything's raised at the full cabinet, that does leak. And the last <laughs> thing, within half an hour of that meeting, I got a phone call, my office got a phone call from Willie Whitelaw's office. See, could I come and see him? It was a one-to-one -one meeting and he wanted a deal. And uh, I was able to make some fairly symbolic changes to my budget of no great significance. Uh, and that was the end of it. Now, I won that exchange, in other words, but I knew I'd used up a lot of capital. The Prime Minister was pretty fed up with me uh, because uh, young whippersnappers who she's just appointed to the cabinet were not supposed to behave like that. But there we are, that's life. How, how big an influence do you think Scotland's been on your politics within the Conservative family? You know, being from Scotland, representing a Scottish seat, being a Secretary of State, do you think in a way that 
that always meant you were going to be slightly on, and I know left and right are kind of almost redundant labels now, but do you think in a way that that Scottish heritage and, and background kept you on the kind of liberal left wing of the Tories? Well, I was born and brought up in Scotland. Edinburgh's my home. That's where I was at school and, and university, Edinburgh University. So I was very Scottish. I was a Scottish member of Parliament. And it was a huge honour to be asked to be Secretary of State for Scotland. I mean, a tremendous privilege. It was one of the most enjoyable periods of my professional uh, life. Now, the particular question you're asking is, did it make me more liberal or on the sort of liberal end of the Conservative Party? You know, ask that question to Michael Forsyth. <laughs> well, I was going to come on to Michael Forsyth. <laughs> Same background. And he was a very strong factor, as were some others. Uh, so I don't think that. No, I, I essentially have always... I, I'm a Conservative because uh, I see the Conservative Party as a non-ideological party. You know, most uh, of the Even left... now? Yeah, I'll come back to that in a second. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I will deal with that. Uh, you've got to ask yourself, why is the Tory party been around and largely in government for two to three hundred years? It is the oldest political party in the world. Now, much older than the Labour Party, which is 120 years old, much older than the Liberals, more older than the Democrats and the Republicans in the United States. Uh, so in order to survive that long, you can't be ideological. Ideologies come and go. Socialism, communism, fascism, all these isms disappear. What makes conservatives conservative is it's about values. And values are eternal, but how you apply them has to be adapted. And the Tory party, which is in some people's view, the old reactionary party, is actually one of the most radical parties in British politics. Who, who produced the first woman prime minister? Yeah. Uh, Two of them. The first Asian chancellor and Asian home secretary. Um, you know, we, we don't have an ideological hand up. Uh, we certainly are to the right of the political spectrum, but the whole concept of one nation conservatism, which is what liberal conservatives tend to use to describe themselves, goes back to Disraeli. Uh, and uh, essentially, uh, that is, uh, so we're all essentially in one form or another pragmatists uh, rather than ideological. Uh, the right wing is, 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 can be pragmatic. I mean, Margaret Thatcher could be very pragmatic when it suited her, but she presented herself as a conviction politician and she disliked having to be pragmatic, whereas those of us who use that term uh, have no qualms about using it. So how do you feel about the direction of the modern Conservative Party, particularly post-referendum? Okay, well, I mean, let's take you look at, I mean, it's obviously Boris Johnson we're talking about. He's the Prime Minister. He's leader of the party. And some people compare him with Trump uh, and uh, in, in an uncomplimentary way. Um, now, apart from a shock of white hair, uh, and an obvious populist manner. You know, uh, he is a populist politician, as is Trump. Apart from that, they've got sod all in common. Uh, Boris Johnson is, he's opportunistic. He will depart from a particular position if politically he believes it necessary. That's how he became uh, pro-Brexit, as we all, all know. But his, all his basic beliefs are in the mainstream liberal conservative end of the spectrum. And you see that at the moment. I mean, if you think compared to America, not just Trump, but America, on these great social issues, uh, where's Boris Johnson on, on gay marriage, uh, on abortion, uh, on capital punishment, um, on immigration, uh, on, uh, on the, you know, all these issues? He not only is, but feels himself to be of that persuasion. So he's not a, a classic right-winger. Uh, what, we are, what, what has distorted our politics has been the Brexit issue. 
Now, whether that's good or bad, I'm not commenting on at the moment. What I'm saying is, and this is where I'm critical of, of, of Johnson, uh, since we left the European Union, he should have said, now's the time to reunite the party. And not just the party, to have a cabinet of all the talents. And he's continued to essentially concentrate on the Brexit people, the Brexit supporters. I think part of the reason is logical in one sense, that he knew that during the course of this year, uh, we would be having to negotiate with the EU about free trade issues and long-term trading relationship. And he wanted to ensure that his cabinet was all united behind him and didn't experience some of the divisions that Theresa May and others had done. So I understand that point, but the price he paid for that uh, was to appear to be perpetuating the Brexit divide within British politics and within the Conservative Party and denying himself access uh, to some of our very able people who would have strengthened his cabinet. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, who was, as we all know, a Thatcherite, a right winger, she had no problem about appointing to her cabinet uh, people who were, as she would say, as wet as they come. I mean, Chris Patton, Ken Clark, myself, uh, one or two others. And she appointed us because, rightly or wrongly, she thought we were of the caliber that would strengthen her cabinet. She didn't let us anywhere near the economic departments. She didn't want to, you know, uh, but she had a cabinet which she judged to be of all the talents. As yet, Johnson can't make that claim. And how do you feel about the label wet? Do, do you take it as a term of offence? Um, well, the alternative is dry. I'm not sure that's <laughs> much more complimentary. I mean, they, they each have connotations. Um, uh, you know, the, I remember when I had a conversation with Margaret Thatcher once after she'd ceased to be prime minister. I'd gone, I was defence secretary at the time. And I'd asked to see her to explain some announcement we were going to make in the Ministry of Defence. And she said, yes, of course, do come and see me. And then she wanted to chat. And uh, she said to me then, as I was leaving, she said, you know the problem with the Ministry of Defence? You've got no allies in the government, because we have this vast budget in the Ministry of Defence, even compared to Scotland, far vaster. Uh, you've got no allies, she said. And then she said, the Foreign Office, they're not wet, they're drenched. <laughs> <laughs> My description of her colleagues in, 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 in the Foreign Office. I thought very unfair, but nevertheless, the view she held. Despite your political differences and perhaps personal and personality differences, did you get on with her? Yes. Uh, well, you see, the differences were when I was Scottish Secretary. I mean, I, my only time that I spent with her was when I was Minister of State at the Foreign Office. Uh, and I was very much involved in the Gorbachev-Thatcher uh, meeting. I I was one of the people who initiated that process. I'm incredibly lucky to be having that responsibility at that time under Jeffrey Howe. And I was at Chequers when uh, Gorbachev and Thatcher met. And on these issues, all the issues of dealing with communism and dealing with the Soviet Union, um, Thatcher and I agreed, um, I agreed with her. I mean, you know, she, she was the Iron Lady and I strongly supported uh, what she was doing at that time, particularly as when Gorbachev arrived, it wasn't just hardline right-wing anti-communism. She developed such a relationship with Gorbachev that she then said to Ronald Reagan, this is a guy with whom we can do business. Coming from anybody else, Reagan would have ignored that advice. Coming from the Iron Lady, if she thinks we might be able to do business with Gorbachev, I'd better take an interest in this guy. So it was a very exciting period. And so that whole period, and I was a Europe minister as well. I dealt with the European community at that time as, a, as a Jeffrey Howe's deputy. 
And on these issues, I didn't agree with everything she was doing on that front, but the issue then wasn't whether we should be in or out. You know, it was about what sort of European community we wanted to have. And I've never been in favor of Britain joining the single currency. I always thought that was a lousy idea. So there were a lot of European issues when I had no difficulty with her, uh, with her opinion. My problem with those when I was Scottish secretary, because she didn't really understand Scotland. Uh, she thought we, sh because Adam Smith came from Scotland and all Scots should be entrepreneurial and, uh, you know, and, and flow from that tradition. And of course, modern Scotland, well, that committed to the beliefs of Adam Smith, even though they perhaps ought to have been. When you think about some of the moments that you were present at, that you were involved in, in that hugely historic stretch in office, how, how, sort of, how far at the pecking order in terms of the things that you really cling on to is that Gorbachev meeting? Oh, tremendously important. I mean, let me give you a couple of examples of why. Um, I mean, I met a number of Soviet leaders, not the very top guys, but you know, Soviet ministers and Politburo people. And when you met them, they were boring functionaries, spouting ideological answers to every question. You never knew whether they were married. You never knew whether they had kids. You never knew anything about their life. And when Gorbachev came on the second day of the visit, I, my wife and I were asked to host by the Foreign Office, uh, by the Foreign Secretary, uh, a supper party, but just a bit of sort of more in, uh, relaxed evening for them. Yeah. Took them to the Colosseum uh, to visit... Um, to see Kozivan Tute uh, and Mrs. Gorbachev have come with Gorbachev and his wife was Raisa. She was uh, very different to the average Soviet wife who normally wore a headscarf and looked like a peasant who had come in from the, the fields. Uh, she was elegant. She was very cerebral. She was a philosopher who had done real academic work. And I, when Gorbachev and Thatcher went off to have their tete-a-tete, -tete, I had to show her around the previous day around the library, around checkers, showing her checkers, just to, you know, interest her. And we went into the library, there's a very good library there, and she was fascinated looking at all the books. And then she turned to me at one stage, and she spoke a bit of English, but she was speaking in Russian through the interpreter. And she said, Mr. Rifkin, I'm so delighted to be in England. I've always wanted to be in the country of Hobbes and Locke. Now, Hobbes and Locke are two English philosophers of the 17th century. People in England might know them. I don't think many Russian wives uh, would have uh, made that remark. So it was obvious we were dealing with a different kind of more modern Russian. And that evening at the theatre, afterwards, we, had a, we gave them supper at Lancaster House. And my wife and I and the Gorbachevs, we just, the four of us at one table, small table with an interpreter. And Gorbachev started telling us about his youth and about how as a young man, he'd lived with these grandparents who were peasants in the Ukraine, his father was off at the war. And he said they were believers, they were religious believers. And they had icons on the wall, religious icons on the wall. But just for insurance purposes, they had portraits of Lenin and Stalin as well. <laughs> then he said to me, uh, when he and Raisa got married, we were not believers, he said. We got married in a civil ceremony. And his, wife, his grandmother, who was religious, was very upset. And she said to me, he said, to, she said, Misha, you have forgotten God, but I shall pray for you. Now, what was extraordinary was not that this had happened, but he was telling me about it. It was, you know, it was like a conversation with a Western politician where you switch, you know, you swap anecdotes about your childhood and the strange things that have happened. And, you know, I remember coming away from that evening saying to my wife, you know, you'd never get that from any other Soviet 
from Gromyko or Brezhnev or you know, anybody of, of that generation couldn't do it even if they wanted to. They were, you know, so we knew that Gorbachev was different. We never realized, I don't claim that we knew that 10 years later, the Soviet Union would cease to exist and communism would disappear. But uh, we knew that something strange was going to happen. Amazing to have played a, a part in that huge change. Yeah, it, 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 it was very, very special. You see, I mean, it, it was extra. I also went to Poland and I went to Hungary. And, and the, the one thing people perhaps don't realize is that even during the communist period, some of the communists actually occasionally, to your surprise, had a great sense of humor. And I remember going to Budapest when Hungary was still communist and the Berlin Wall was still standing. And the Hungarian minister I was dealing with, he said to me in the evening when we were having dinner, he said, Mr. Rifkin, do you know what is the definition of an East German string quartet? And I said, no, what is an East German string quartet? And he smiled, he said, an East German orchestra that has just returned from a tour of West Germany. <laughs> <laughs> Very dark humor. <laughs> Hungarian communist minister. So, wow. you know, uh, so humor, is, you sometimes find humor is actually even funnier in dictatorships than it is in democracy. Well, I suppose it has to be in a way, the, the gallows humor. Can't get rid of the politicians by the ballot box. So forgive my language, you take the piss out of them, you know, by mocking them in, in a very funny way. Um, I quoted to you earlier from, from John Major's autobiography. There's, there's a passage in Margaret Thatcher's autobiography about you when she says... Autobiography eventually. <laughs> when she says she appointed you Secretary of State for Defence. She said, I appointed Malcolm Rifkind with mixed feelings. He had been a passionate supporter of Scottish devolution when we were in opposition. He was one of the party's most brilliant and persuasive debaters. No one could doubt his intellect or his grasp of ideas. Unfortunately, he was as sensitive and highly strung as he was eloquent. His judgment was erratic and his behavior unpredictable. Yeah, well, that, I took that as a compliment. <laughs> I don't want my behavior to be predictable because that means I'm boring. You know, that means I, all my views were, made, you know, were decided 100 years ago and I've never been prepared to change a view or express an opinion that wasn't entirely conventional. Um, what she was basically saying, maybe I was a bit highly strong, I have no idea, that's for others to judge. But I think she was basically saying I occasionally had a row with her. <laughs> oh, yes, I'm sure that's what she meant. You mentioned Michael Forsyth earlier, and, and um, yeah. I was always going to come on to that. But one of the things that, that Thatcher said about you was that you kind of extolled the virtues of Thatcherism in public, but perhaps didn't necessarily um, want to implement them in Scotland. And Michael was perhaps, as you said, slightly more Thatcherite than you are. Is that fair as to where the fault line was? It's partly true, but it's it's not quite right. She wasn't quite right on that. My problem with her was not the policies that she believed in. I mean, I was her minister who took through Scotland with great enthusiasm at the sale of council houses, the right of council tenants to buy their homes. I, I was deeply enthusiastic about it, and it was a huge success. That's when I was a, a junior minister at the Scottish office. Uh, and I had no problem with privatisation. I was personally responsible for the privatization of the Scottish electricity industry, for the Scottish transport group and various other things. My issue with her was she wanted to do things in some areas that just were too uh, politically sensitive to do it the same way as she was doing it in England. I mean, for example, let me just give an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, in England, she uh, wanted to give parents at schools uh, much more power over state schools. I'm not talking about independent schools. And this is grant-maintained stuff. 
Well, not even Grantman 10. These were just all English secondary schools uh, under her policies were to have school governors who would actually be able to handle the parts of the budget and make appointments and be like school governors, you know, the pa real parents' power sort of stuff. And she said, why can't, and why you should be doing this in Scotland? And that's what Michael Forsyth was supporting her on. I said, I have no problem with that as an objective. But the problem is we're starting from a different base. England has always had a tradition of school governors, although they haven't had many powers. Scotland's never even had anything of that kind. There's not even been a school council. For whatever reason, it's not been part of the Scottish tradition. It's all been left to the professional teaching staff uh, to run the schools together with the local authority uh, education department. So you cannot go, I said, from no parental involvement to giving teachers, and there's no demand for that. And we don't have a political mandate in Scotland uh, saying we can't, we can't even say the majority of Scots voted for that at the general election. They didn't. So I said, we've got to do it in a, a different time scale and in a different way. And indeed, I did set up school boards uh, with parents and, and the beginning of that process. But she was being told by people like Michael Forsyth, oh, don't worry, just push it through and it will all be very popular and so forth. Well, it wasn't, uh, you know, so. And when Michael Forsyth became Secretary of State, actually his approach was very similar to mine and Ian Lang's who succeeded me. So in reality, he was a very good Secretary of State doing much the same as we did. So Michael Forsyth was, was chair of the Scottish Tories. Margaret Thatcher makes him chair while you're Secretary of State. Against my advice. Against your advice. I mean, how, how difficult is that then? You've advised her not to make this guy chair. She makes him chair. He knows that you've advised her not to make him chair. I mean, how did the relationship between the two of you work? Well, it, it was very difficult because, she, because he was chairman of the party in Scotland and because he was very close to her. Anything that I was doing that he didn't like or he thought wasn't sufficiently Thatcherite, uh, he would privately, I mean, I, I didn't see it happening, but I, everybody knew it was happening. He would be feeding to her or to her closest staff colleagues uh, his disapproval uh, and so forth. Uh, and it wasn't good for government. But what, it, it only didn't last very long because within a year or so, it wasn't so much his policy, it was more his style. At that time, uh, he was a very aggressive in his manner. Uh, and I, uh, we began to get representations, not just from one nation conservatives on the left of the party, but from some of the more right-wing people in Scotland, including many of our business donors to the party, that he was proving very bad as a party chairman and should just go back to being just a minister. And to cut a long story short, that's what indeed happened after a re relatively short time. I, ha I want to emphasize that since then, he and I have actually become quite good friends. Oh, good. He was Scottish Secretary. Uh, he was actually a very good minister and I'm under John Major. And I remember saying to him, you've changed, Michael. And he smiled to me and said, yes, I have. And I said, in what way? He said, well, I, you know, when, when you and I were working in the Scottish office under Margaret Thatcher, I used to think everything was black and white and now I, or white. And now I know that most things are shades of gray. You know, it was a maturing process, if I can put it that way. Well, I think if, if people stay in politics long enough, they, they tend to go on some form of a journey of sorts, don't they, whether it's personal or political. Um, just, to, just to stay in Scotland for now, uh, the poll tax was introduced in Scotland a year before it was in the rest of the UK. Um, I insist on you referring it to the community charge. The community charge, sorry. The community charge was introduced a year before. Um, 
because of different reforms that were going on there. But um, you were instrumental in, in getting the rebate backdated. Uh, and John Major says, uh, I think it's after one of his budgets, you sit down next to him and say, if it's not backdated, maybe you threatened to resign or maybe you didn't. I don't know. He says you did. Um, would you have resigned? Had he not, had he not backdated the, the poll tax rebate for the people of Scotland? Would you have gone? Hold on. I mean, I think for anybody who's watching this, they need to understand a bit of the background. Uh, the poll tax came in a year earlier in Scotland than in England. And that was not because the government insisted on it or that uh, it was a, being used as an experiment or whatever. Uh, it was because the old domestic rating system was so loaded in Scotland that my predecessor, George Younger, with the support from the whole party in Scotland uh, and from most public opinion at that time, said we need to get rid of the domestic rates as soon as possible. And if we can do it a year earlier in England, we should. So the effect of that was that the rebate for people on low income who might not be able to afford the poll tax had been set at a level covering Scotland and England. And before it was introduced in England, the government decided at the last moment in the budget, uh, without any of the rest of us knowing it was going to be in the budget, that the rebate would be increased from the beginning in England. So I had to say to the Prime Minister and to John Major, who was uh, Chancellor, fine, I have no problem with that. But in our case, because we've had it for a year, there has to be a retrospective rebate, which refunds those who haven't benefited from that. And at first, the government refused to, well, not the government, Prime Minister didn't want to know. And I said, look, you know, and this had become a huge issue in Scotland, rightly so, in my view. I thought it was just grossly unfair. And I wasn't asking for more money. I said, I will fund it out of my existing budget by making savings elsewhere. This is a purely political thing I have to be able to do. And at first, the answer was no. And I never threatened to resign as such. But in a very difficult one-to-one -one meeting with Margaret Thatcher, and John Major wasn't at that meeting, uh, I did say, look, I cannot be of any use to you as Secretary of State for Scotland if I've seen to have so little authority that I cannot use my own budget without getting any more money from you in order to correct what would be seen as an injustice. Now, when a minister says I, can't, I wouldn't be of any use to you, uh, you know, she had a pretty good idea of what that meant. Uh, sort of threatening to resign without threatening to resign. I never threatened to resign. I never used the language. But I think I probably would have gone if we hadn't. We reached a very satisfactory, from my point of view, uh, compromise. Uh, and it would have been very difficult for me. It wasn't just an empty threat. No, I, I never made, I mean, contrary to what John Major implied, uh, I, that was the only time that I was seriously assuming that the following day I, may, I might no longer be Secretary of State. Um, so most of my problems with Thatcher, even if I disagreed, I, I, she was Prime Minister. I mean, she was entitled to overrule me. She overruled me on the choice of a permanent secretary uh, at one stage. She overruled me on the choice of a party chairman, Michael Fisser. Now, you know, she's Prime Minister. You, you, you've got to accept that's what Prime Ministers are entitled to do from time to time. But if it's a, a gut issue, uh, then the honorable thing is for you to say, well, I can't stop you doing this, but I can no longer serve in your government. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you look at the powers that Scotland has now over its own affairs, yes. uh, you were a supporter of devolution. Uh, is there a case to say that devolution has gone too far and actually devolution has, has weakened the union? Well, you, you could certainly argue that it's not just for Scotland. The fact is that uh, when I began in politics and served in Thatcher's government, there was no Scottish Parliament, but there was no Welsh Assembly either. Uh, and Northern Ireland was a, a, the one exception. Now you not only have a Scottish Parliament with very powerful powers, a Welsh Assembly has become a Welsh Parliament and is doing much the same and will do in due course. But also you've had uh, more recently massive uh, devolution of control of resources to the various major cities and conurbations of England. So it's a very British solution to a, a, a British problem, because, because Scotland and Wales and England each have their own national identity as well as being part of a United Kingdom, it does not automatically follow that the best form of government within the UK has to be identical. We're not the United States with 50 states all with the same constitution. It's a different kind of situation. So I think we've evolved uh, what is a, a perfectly reasonable system. Uh, whether it needs further change or not, well, time will tell. But the arguments for independence, which the nationalists use, uh, I think are complete, completely foolish. Uh, I, I can't, no one can predict what the future might hold. People sometimes vote for foolish things. Uh, who knows what might happen? But I, the, the, argument, the, the rational arguments for independence are much, much weaker now than they were at the last referendum. Much weaker. Uh, because oil has disappeared as a source of revenue. Uh, it's well known that if uh, Scotland was an independent state, it would have a massive deficit, which could only be funded either by major cuts in health and education or whatever, or huge taxes, uh, because the UK would not as a whole be providing any contribution. And in addition to that, of course, we have left the European Union. Uh, so if Scotland became independent, uh, at least in the first instance, for several years, it would be neither part of the EU nor part of the United Kingdom. If it then did eventually join the European Union as a separate country, uh, it, you would then have a hard border between Scotland and England. We would need a Scottish backstop, if I can invent the phrase. <laughs> I want to control that again. But do you, as, as someone who wants to keep Scotland in the UK, do you think, you know, some people in the Tory party say, well, constantly giving the SNP what they want, you know, constantly giving them more powers, might in the short term, kind of scratch an itch, but actually overall it has contributed to, to a, a greater sense of Scottish independence and, and not a greater sense of being part of the UK. The world as a whole has changed 
And in democracies, you cannot have, not just in Britain, but this applies in many other countries, you have to have uh, a legitimate form of decentralized government or the country will break apart. You think of the problem the Spanish are having with the Catalans. You know, the Catalans, we had a referendum and the Scottish public voted to stay part of the United Kingdom. The Catalans have never had that choice. And they have a great constitutional crisis because the issue then becomes not just do we want independence, but why aren't we being given an opportunity to express our view? In Scotland, it's quite different. Uh, there was such an opportunity, which the Nationalists said was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. They lost. And now they want to have, keep having referendums till they win one. Uh, in Canada, when they went through that process, it stopped being called referendums. They were called neverendums. You know, you keep having a referendum till you win once, and then you never have one again because you've, you've broken away. But do you have some sympathy with people in Scotland who say in 2014 we signed up to a union that we thought we had shared values, we didn't vote to leave the EU, you guys did, this feels like it changes the deal? Well, I can understand for some people that might be important, but I think that can be hugely exaggerated. First of all, this is not a north-south issue. There were two major parts of the United Kingdom that voted 62% to remain. One was Scotland and the other was London. <laughs> and the bits in between took a different view. And that's some of the bits, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, uh, it's, it's too simplistic uh, to, to say that. Also, I don't think, uh, I mean, I'm sure there were some people in Scotland who voted to remain in the UK because we were part of the European Union. But there's no evidence that that was uh, the major factor. And indeed, I'll tell you something else. Of the 38% of Scots who voted to leave the EU, that's almost 40%, you know, and that's a huge minority. It included one in four nationalists. One in four SNP voters voted to leave. Why? Quite logically, they said, we want to be independent. What's the point of being independent of London if we're going to be run by Brussels? Uh, you know? So that's not Nicola Sturgeon's view, but one quarter of our own party took that view. Uh, so the issue is infinitely more complicated and complex than all this nonsense about We've left the EU, therefore it's all totally new world. We must have another referendum. That's but it hasn't helped. It would, be, it would be perhaps easier had we voted to remain in the EU. It hasn't helped. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and it's partly because, because of the Brexit issue. Again, whatever is right and wrongs. It means Britain has been obsessed with constitutional issues um, for the last three or four years. And that inevitably gives a higher profile to the whole issue of, well, what about Scottish, Welsh, Northern Irish future in the United Kingdom. You know, the, 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 and the quicker we can relax and settle down and try and apply a rational approach to these issues. But remember, the United Kingdom is not an artificial state like some have been in other parts of the world. We're an island. You know, the, the fact that we are a United Kingdom is be overwhelmingly because we're an island. Well, Britain's an island, an island's an island, and that's another yes. issue. Well, you know, for the moment, let's just talk about England, Scotland, and Wales. You know, we, we're an island. I mean, Northern Ireland is different because the circumstances of Northern Ireland separating from the Republic it was this, well, the history in the 1920s. So thinking of Scotland, Wales and, 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 and England, uh, you know, we share language, we share a culture. And when you think about it, we have had no internal war or conflict within Scotland, Wales and England for 300 years since the Union, 1707. Now, you know, that is not to be found in many countries around the world. So it's not exactly that the union has failed. Scotland was never suppressed. I mean, you know, this is what the Scottish nationalists don't like. 
you know, from a, the Irish point of view, the Irish can say they were oppressed, but they weren't oppressed by the English. They were oppressed by the Brits. And half of the people doing the oppressing were the Scots, <laughs> as is well known. <laughs> Thinking of uh, connections between other co countries, specifically between Britain and France, when the Channel Tunnel was made, when you were Secretary of State for Transport, you went down and witnessed the two sides yes. tunneling through. I mean, is that... Well, when they is met, that more impressive than the Gorbachev meeting or less impressive? Well, I mean, no, it's just as, well, I, yeah, I mean, I was essentially a tourist, you know. I mean, I, I had just become transport secretary. And my first responsibility, which I inherited from Cecil Parkinson, my predecessor, was to be the British minister at, at the moment under the tunnel when, not the, it wasn't when the trains were already driving, it was when the, the people digging. And of course, the big issue was when they were digging from either side, would they meet at the same spot? Yeah. Like they passed, uh, <laughs> that could have been very embarrassing. So fortunately, that didn't happen. And uh, and I like to say at the time, I said, you know, we've been trying to get a channel tunnel going since, what, 200 years, since the time of uh, uh, 1800s. I became transport secretary and four days later. <laughs> <laughs> and when we were down there, I'll never forget the, the actual event itself because they had deliberately left a sliver of... Uh, rock and earth to be opened up for the very first time for the ceremony and the French Minister of Transport was on one side uh, with various of the workmen who were doing the digging and his own I was on the other side and we we heard digging at the other side and our people were doing the same and eventually a hole appeared and you could see light on either side and then it was made slightly larger and eventually it was large enough for somebody to walk through and the decision had been taken, a very sensible decision. The first ever people to do that would not be ministers. They would be one of the two workmen, French and British, who would go through and embrace and shake hands and so forth. And then the rest of us joined in. And then to celebrate the suspicious occasion, we had toasts. And of course, Britain and France are different countries. So the French, quite properly, celebrated on champagne. Yeah. And we had mineral water. Oh, come on. It got worse because <laughs> throughout the British side of the tunnel, very sensibly, because you're digging underground, there were strict rules about no smoking. The French were all puffing away on their dix bleu. And no go way. Go yeah, yeah, absolutely. <gasps> the difference. <laughs> and I remember the, having a supper with the French Minister of Transport a few months later. I was in France. And we'd got to know each other by then. Richard Delabar, I think his name was. And I said, can I ask you a question? Just the two of us. And I said, I want to ask you a question about the differences between our two countries. And I said, when in Britain, as transport ministers, when in Britain, we want a new road or a new railway or a new airport, it's hugely controversial. We have years and years of public inquiries. And eventually, there's so much controversy, it never happens. So we, we, we don't have that good public infrastructure for transport. I said, in France, you have just the same controversy, but you seem able to ignore it. So you have the, you know, you have the Vita, the Vitesse train, the very speedy train, the Channel Tunnel, whose train goes twice as fast as Eurostar in England. I said, how do you get away with it, given that you have the same controversy from your public? And I've never forgotten his reply. He was speaking in English, uh, and I don't think he appreciated how it sounded, what he said. He said, well, Michel Yvkund, uh, it is quite simple. In France, in France, if we wish to drain the swamps, we do not consult the frogs. <laughs> wow. 
I didn't dare ask him if he appreciated what the term frogs <laughs> meant to a British ears. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking about how if you were one of the first people to go down there. Yes. Well, how did you get through? Like, were you just on the back of a kind of well, yeah. no, Tonka well, truck type thing? Yeah, what, what they'd had to do as the tunnel progressed, they had railway lines put in the tunnel so that the workmen could go all the way from England to halfway across the channel. They didn't have to walk all the way or, or buses. And they just went in a, a work, a, a special bit of rail, rolling stock, which is what we were in. So we had our hard helmets and our, you know, stuff to protect our clothing and all that. Sort of thing. It was pretty easy. It took about 30 minutes or so. And it was pretty dusty and not very pleasant, but perfectly safe. I mean, at that point, there must have been people that were worried about, you know, what if the water comes through? You know, people weren't used to travelling through a tunnel from England to France before. Were you nervous at all on that visit? Well, I would have been if they were digging for the first time. I was certainly. But you see, I went on to be defence secretary subsequently. And, you know, compared with that particular experience, I mean, you know, my most hair-raising experience when I was defence secretary, I was invited the opportunity to fly in a tornado, uh, sitting in what was normally the Navigator seat, behind the pilot, you know, two-seater uh, fighter aircraft, the Tornado GR1, which is a ground attack aircraft. And I was nervous as a kitten, but when you're a defense secretary, you can't say, no, I'd rather not. I'm too nervous. You know, you are minister of defense. You're supposed to be very brave. So I turn up at RAF Marham in East Anglia for the, this event, and I put in my G-suit, because uh, your speeds are such, the pressure you have to be protected from. And uh, I'm being briefed by the pilot. I swear this is what happened. He said, now, minister, we'll be flying at X hundred miles an hour, at X thousand feet, uh, in an emergency, sir, I, and he pointed to the aircraft cockpit. He said, in an emergency, sir, I'll pull that lever and we'll both be ejected from the aircraft and parachute to the ground. Oh, man. If, I, if the emergency is such that I've been injured, forget about me, just write me off, sir. You have your own lever, you pull that, and you'll be ejected from the aircraft and parachute to the ground. And he said, any questions? <laughs> I said, yes, I do, as a matter of fact. I said, I have to point out that I have never been ejected from a fighter aircraft before, nor parachuted to the ground from any kind of aircraft. I said, I know the Prime Minister would prefer to avoid a pilot, if possible. Do you have any advice? He said, very good question, sir. Yes, I do have advice. Relax. He said, oh, thank you very much. So I get hoisted into my seat behind the pilot, and we're just about to take off. And he said, any final questions or comments through the intercom? He said, any final questions or comments, sir? And I knew these guys, when they have a politician, they'd like to loop the loop and make you sick as a parrot. Of course, yeah, they want to show off. And that was not going to happen because I was nervous enough as it was. So I said, well, yes, it's, it's not a question. It's a comment you might like to think about. I said, uh, you might like to know that in the Ministry of Defence, we now know how much money is available next year for the Army, the Navy and the Air Force, for the Armed Forces but we haven't yet decided how much will go to each of the services. Uh, so far as the RAF is concerned, this might be influenced by whether I enjoy this experience. <laughs> Silence, he said, got it, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it was absolutely fabulous. We, we did a mid-air refueling. Uh, we flew up to North, uh, Northumberland in 20 minutes. It, wow. it was, all my nerves disappeared. I just enjoyed it. It was really very special. Because when you said your most hair-raising moment was during your time as Secretary of State for Defence, I thought it might be to do with Northern Ireland and dealing with Adams and McGuinness and the communications between the two. I mean, was, was that ever a, 
a nervous I was experience. Side of things, I was defence secretary. I was really just in charge of the armed forces. No, the, the, the only time I nearly came a cropper in Northern Ireland uh, was when I was almost killed by the British Army. <laughs> oh God! Not deliberately. Um, no. I was visiting West Belfast, which is bandit country. You know, that was the, 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 the where the IRA were mainly based, and we were in an army jeep. And I was sitting next to the driver, and behind me there was a general and a brigadier. And the guy, guy who, uh, if, you, if you're in the, the army, they never use seat belts. And the guy who'd sh shown me to, where to sit in the front had closed the door, but it turned out he hadn't closed it properly. And so we were driving quite fast, and as we swerved around a corner, the door flew open. And because of the angle, and because I wasn't wearing a seatbelt and hadn't been told to, and, you know, nobody was, I was about to follow him you know, <sighs> by the movement of the vehicle. And the brigadier behind, without asking my permission, saw what was happening, grabbed me by the scruff of the neck from behind and held on like grim death. Because <laughs> otherwise, at the very least, I'd have been injured. I mean, I don't know, you know it could have been worse. Well, by pure coincidence, six months <laughs> later, that brigadier became a general. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> it was a coincidence, to be honest. But it, I like to pretend it wasn't. <laughs> you were foreign secretary as well in the in the final years of that of that um, conservative government, and, and that you know the, in the major administration from ninety two to ninety seven. That's often seen really as the kind of forgive me, uh, forgive me, forgive me. Foreign secretary, defence secretary, ninety two to ninety five. Foreign, sec foreign secretary, ninety five to ninety seven. Yeah. Um, in that final, you know, the, that final term where it all starts to fall apart, Maastricht and all the other rebellions. How did you feel about the Maastricht rebels? I was major called them bastards. Um, was that your feeling? Well, you know, we'd been in power then for uh, coming up to 18 years. And we knew that barring a miracle, uh, we were unlikely to get a fifth term. Uh, and of course, Tony Blair was a very different leader to Michael Foot or Neil Kinnock or, or people like that. He was incredibly popular in his early years. People forget that. And indeed, we'd been ministers for so long that I think, if I'm not mistaken, my wife said during that election in '97, "If we win this election, I'm going to demand a recount." <laughs> <laughs> you know, because she'd been married to a government minister for 18 yeah. years. It wasn't really what she'd signed up to, <laughs> if you don't mind So, but you're asking about the, the, the bastard, so-called. Um, the whole issue, which became eventually known as Brexit, was already, you know, these, these were people, uh, some of the people who supported Brexit a couple of few years ago were opportunistic. They, they'd crossed over, as it were. No names, no pectoral. Uh, the people that John Major was having to deal with, uh, were people who believed in it in their guts. I mean, they did not want us in the European Union, and they certainly didn't want us conceding more powers to the European Union. Uh, so people like John Redwood and Bill Cash and, and uh, the, uh, the others. Duncan Smith. Duncan Smith, yeah. You know, I mean, you, you can't fault their integrity. You know, they, they may not have been very loyal as, as colleagues, uh, but, you know, they put, from their perspective, and I didn't agree with them, but from their perspective, uh, the national interests of their country demanded them to be uh, uncompromising in their opinions. And, you know, you have to admire that, even if you're finding it awkward at the time.
I remember one of my first memories is John Major, Don't Bind My Hands. You know, an amazing piece of drama. It's sort of a remarkable survivor, John Major, really. Prime Minister for seven years, wins that incredible victory in 1992, conducted himself publicly with, you know, real um, dignity. Was he I, as, what was he like as a Prime Minister to serve? When you said that, Don't Bind My Hands quote, uh, I, of course, it's not unprecedented. And Nyron Bevan. Uh, when uh, he was faced with, um, he was involved in negotiations on, dis- uh, on nuclear weapons. Uh, and he said to his left-wing colleague, he was left-winger, he said, he said don't, don't send me naked. Naked, yeah, into the debating chamber, yeah. You know, you, you're not serving the national interest if you do that. So what was John Major like? John, I, I had not originally, I'd originally supported Douglas Hurd uh, as uh, Thatcher's supporter. So I wasn't, but I worked very closely with John Major, both as defense secretary, and obviously he was kind enough to appoint me as foreign secretary. And I found him very impressive indeed. Very, very impressive. He didn't have the charisma of a Thatcher or a Blair, but he not only was extremely able and very analytical and very smart, uh, he also had a deep sense of the public interest. So, And to be fair, this applied to Tony Blair as well. Both of them, spent huge numbers of hours on Northern Ireland, slowly crafting uh, in a very slow, it could only be done very slowly, step by step. There were no votes in it, either for Major or for Blair. It was done because of a realization that gradually the IRA, Sinn Féin, Adams and McGuinness were realizing they'd started life as young terrorists, they'd become middle-aged terrorists, and they were going to end up as very elderly terrorists, and they still would not have broken the British spirit. Because what they'd hoped was that terrorism, particularly on the mainland, would say the Brits would say, "Well, we'll give up Northern Ireland," to get, and that wasn't going to happen. And it, uh, so, once they began to send serious signals, they were prepared to look for a political solution and give up the armed struggle, so-called. That still took months and several years. You can't just go overnight from people blowing you up to trusting them uh, with other matters. And that's where my high opinion of Major and subsequently of Blair on, on that Northern Irish issue is, is virtually unqualified. And do you still ever talk to John Major or anyone that you were in cabinet with? I meet occasionally. Yes, we have lunch together. Uh, probably, you know, we see each other probably once or twice a year. We're not close friends, but we, we are friends. I mean, we have a very good relationship. And he occasionally has rung me up to ask me my view on something, and I occasionally got in touch with him. And yeah, it's, it's a good relationship. And when you get together, do you reminisce about the old days? Do you do you pick over old cabinet meetings, old moments, uh, colleagues? Um, it's much more interesting to reminisce about what's happening now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you know, in any in any workplace, when old colleagues get together, you remember the old days. I just wondered if for, I mean, for former foreign secretaries and prime ministers, it's the same. The odd anecdote, the odd thing, but no, I mean, frankly, I would imagine we spend more time discussing our views on how our successors are coping with the problems they have to deal with, if I can put it that way. Because <laughs> he pops up from time to time. Him and Tony Blair actually kind of come as a package these days. They did during the Brexit John, referendum. They have done since on the single market bill. Yeah, John Major is a very good example of what an ex-prime minister ought to do. Because if you've been prime minister, you have a vast amount of experience. So you shouldn't become a Trappist monk. It's not like the queen not being able to make any political comments. But you don't want to be lecturing your successors all the time. 
So you don't, you should not get involved in day-to-day -day political debates, and you should not be pontificating, in, you know, with a view on every damn subject. But if there's some very big issue, and obviously Brexit was one, uh, but there have been others as well, um, then the nation benefits from hearing the view of someone who served at the highest level of government, but no longer has a, a vested interest in trying to persuade you of their point of view. They've got nothing personally to gain from that. They're, they're telling you what they honestly feel and they're being more objective. And indeed, most of us who've been senior cabinet ministers, if I get interviewed on some policy issue by radio or television or a newspaper, uh, they are hoping uh, not only that they'll get a more dispassionate view, but, you know, I don't need to support the government or oppose them. I can uh, express my personal judgment and that may be of more interest to their readers or viewers than it would otherwise have been. So Major loses in 1997, perhaps inevitably to Tony Blair, for the reasons that you describe. You lose your seat in, in Edinburgh as well. You come back, as you said, for South Kensington and Chelsea. And in 2005, for a, a brief period, stand for the leadership of the Tory party. Unexpectedly, Michael Howard had announced right after the general election that he was standing down. By that time, I was in the shadow cabinet. Uh, I was probably the most senior member in terms of experience in the shadow cabinet. I think I was, I maybe not, maybe mistaken, but can't remember for certain. Um, and uh, I thought, well, no, nothing ventured, nothing gained. But I didn't go right through the process. And in fact, I withdrew at a fairly early stage uh, when despite being convinced of my own merits, uh, I decided the number of others who shared that view unlikely to be sufficient. So how would David Cameron obviously won that leadership election, went on to be prime minister, went on to do the things he did. I wonder, as a sliding doors moment, how would history have been different had, had, had you won in 2005? Do you think you'd have won? Do you think you'd have become prime minister of the 2010 election? Would we have had a Brexit referendum? I think the most important difference is that I wouldn't have appeared in Sasha Swire's diary. <laughs> this is what a lot of MPs are talking about these days, these diaries. <laughs> No, you know, each person's different. I mean, David Cameron and Tony Blair, for that matter, both became prime minister never having served in government. You know, but in their own way, each of them were perfectly able to handle the job. You know, so you cannot simply do say uh, it is against the public interest for somebody to become prime minister unless they've spent X number of years. However, in both cases, I think the lack of, of previous experience uh, was relevant. Uh, because the Iraq war, for example, uh, I think David Cameron, uh, sorry, Tony Blair, I'm sorry, Tony Blair um, had convinced himself of the rectitude of what he was doing on that front, but he had no experience to fall back on. His involvement in foreign policy had only begun the day he became prime minister. And Cameron on the Brexit issue was in a, it's not a criticism, it's just the, the, the historical fact that that was uh, their personal history, um, gave them a limited uh, ability to understand the, the dynamics of international issues. That's a fascinating assessment of Blair, because obviously Iraq, as an issue, comes up halfway through his second term, halfway through his premiership. By that point, he feels like he's bedded in, you know, his popularity to one side, but in terms of his ability, he felt kind of all-conquering at that point. I'd never really thought of Iraq through the lens of, had he had some cabinet experience before then, perhaps his instincts and decision-making might have been different. My main criticism of Blair 
is it was always obvious that if there was a war, uh, the military side of it would be dead easy, particularly with the Americans leading the campaign. The Iraqi army would collapse very, very quickly, and therefore Saddam Hussein would lose power. That was not unexpected. That was always going to be true. We'd already had the first Gulf War to liberate Kuwait, which was a correct war and which worked very, very well. But once they took the view, which they did, that this was not just about getting rid of Saddam Hussein, but you know, creating democracy, creating human rights and all this sort of stuff, uh, they didn't appreciate that Saddam Hussein was not just a personal ghastly dictator. He represented the Sunni minority who had ruled Iraq for 50 years. And if you introduce democracy in Iraq, that meant they could never ever hope to rule Iraq again. So even although Saddam Hussein had gone, most of the leading Sunnis saw this as a huge threat to their own future. And when the stupid, stupid decision was taken to disarm the whole Iraqi army without confiscating all their weapons, you know, guess what happened? You know, they became an internal source of major physical conflict and Iraq collapsed into civil war. Now, that was not only predictable, it was predicted. And somebody who'd had more knowledge, more experience, was more dispassionate about the issue, would have listened to some of the advice from the people who understood the kind of country Iraq was, and would have said, is this war really necessary? Because even if he genuinely believed that Saddam Hussein represented a nuclear weapons threat, there was no need for that war to take place that particular year. Everybody, nobody was suggesting that they were at an advanced stage in creating nuclear weapons. It would have taken years, even if the original claim had been correct, uh, for that to be a real threat. And therefore, the, uh, the option could have been kept in reserve. So they were fair in as well, perhaps, to say that th th there's another element here, which is Britain, and maybe you disagree with this assessment, seems to learn from previous conflicts and then judge future conflicts on past ones. So is it fair to say that, for instance, we didn't go in on Assad because of the way that we'd handled Iraq? Is it also fair to say that perhaps we go too hard in Iraq because of things like Bosnia? Well, sure, but let me respond in a slightly different way. Um, we've had a number of wars we've got involved in. The successful ones where we had specific objectives which could be realized by military means. I think of two in particular. The Falklands, where once we'd liberated the islands, got rid of the Argentinians, that was it. Job complete. Mission accomplished. The second was the liberation of Kuwait and getting the Iraqis out of that country when the first President Bush rightly decided not to try and overthrow the Iraqi government as well. He stopped at that stage. So these were examples of a successful war. Now, you mentioned Bosnia. Blair was certainly influenced by Bosnia. Uh, because Blair and a minority of other people, including Margaret Thatcher, uh, were very partisan in that conflict. There were good guys and bad guys. And it was an oversimplified position. The tragedy of the Bosnian conflict was it was actually a form of civil war. They were all Bosnians. Milosevic, ghastly though he was, did not send his own troops into Bosnia. He didn't take part in the war. He gave diplomatic and political help, but he didn't get directly. It was Bosnian Croats, Bosnian Serbs, Bosnian Muslims who were all fighting each other. And uh, the most of the ethnic cleansing and the ghastliness was the Bosnian Serbs. That is undoubtedly true. But Thatcher got a, a 
big, big fright when she realized, because she had been saying how Tujman, the leader of the Croats, uh, was a great guy. And then it turned out he'd been involved in ethnic cleansing as well, his people. Uh, you know, so when you're in a civil war situation, which Syria was as well, best for other countries to stay out if they can. But when you have, as Syria had, um, use of chemical weapons, is, is that a line that, that we shouldn't allow to be crossed? Well, it is certainly true that the refusal of the House of Commons to endorse the government's desire to do a military uh, strike because of the chemical weapons, that was because of the legacy of Iraq. That, that is undoubtedly true. And, and that was, uh, I think, a mistake for the House of Commons to take that view. But one understood why it happened. Um, and, and that is the other tragedy of the Iraq war. It has made an objective analysis when, because there are occasions when military intervention is justified, and there are other occasions when it isn't. And these are issues uh, which should not be over-influenced uh, by uh, previous wars, unless there is an exact parallel, and there very rarely is an exact parallel. You, you obviously have, as well as being foreign secretary, you were chair of the intelligence and security committee from 2010 to 2015 um in a fascinating period obviously post iraq post afghanistan um how hard is it to hold our intelligence services to account not hard at all it seriously isn't because people forget that until the 1990s uh, the intelligence agencies did not operate under act of parliament uh, they were directly answerable to ministers but we never even admitted publicly they existed and it wasn't just that Parliament and the public said they must come under a, a legal framework. The agencies themselves said, we want to be under a legal framework. We know we have powers to do what other people aren't permitted to do. We, our employees, our staff, want to be satisfied that they're not breaking the law. That the, the Parliament has chosen to say, if you're an MI6 or MI5 or GCHQ, under certain circumstances with proper authority, you can intercept people's emails, you can open their letters, you can do other things that the agency, intelligence agencies have to do. And so the people, I, I, I know the people MI6, MI5, GCHU very well. I don't just mean the top people, a lot of the ordinary staff members of these organizations. As far as they're concerned, they're not some elite, uh, separate group like uh, the KGB. Uh, they are citizens who are doing a job and they don't want to have privileges that uh, have not been properly sanctioned by Parliament as being in the national interest. So, well, a, a level of secrecy, though, I guess, is required given the nature of the work. Yes, but the big change that has happened in recent years, and it's worth bearing this in mind, is that until 20 years ago, everything about the intelligence agencies was kept secret unless they couldn't help but admit it. Now it's the other way around. Now the intelligence agencies will openly say lots and lots of things. They'll say whatever they can say, unless there is some obvious national security damage by revealing certain information. So it's the other way around. Yeah, and so you now have the intelligence agencies applying for staff on, online. They recruit staff online. Uh, we know exactly who runs these agencies. We know what they look like. Uh, but we, what we don't know is everything that happens there, nor should we because you cannot reveal to the British public without revealing to our actual or potential enemies. You know, that's the nature of an open society. 
You can't just say all, you know, sometimes people say the British public are entitled to know what the MI, MI6 are doing. Well, how do you tell the British public without telling the Chinese and the Russians simultaneously? It's impossible by definition. It must have been a, a really enjoyable job. I mean, do you, do you feel, um, do you feel sad about the way it ended? I mean, I remember the, the Telegraph and Dispatches thing. I remember watching it. But well, they, it's a sort of an attempted sting. It didn't really feel like there was anything in it. Well, there wasn't anything in it. It was a complete bogus thing. And the, 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 the commissioner of standards uh, at the end of the, her inquiry uh, slated the Telegraph and Channel 4 for having distorted uh, the secret recording they were doing of conversation. What they did, it was a typical hatchet job of what occasionally happens, but it was disgraceful. The Telegraph and Channel 4 should have done this. The, the dispatches program, they chopped up bits of my remarks and attributed certain remarks as if they were answers to the question when they were in fact answers to another question. I mean, I, it's all chapter and verse in my book and in the commissioner's report, examples of this. It really was a, quite a disgrace, but uh, it didn't really bring my period as chair to, to an end in that dramatic sense that your remark implied. Uh, I'd been appointed for the parliament. Uh, we'd finished all the work we had to do and in fact, when I, uh, I stayed on the committee, but I stepped down as chairman, my colleagues on the committee, it was our decision, decided not even to appoint an acting chairman because we only had another two or three weeks to run before the appointment ran out. So it was a glorious five years. And the most important things we did was to dramatically increase the powers of the committee because they had not been properly thought through. And um, up till then, most of our obtaining of information from the intelligence agencies required their agreement. We weren't automatically as a parliamentary committee entitled to it. And that's all been changed in a very fundamental way. And for the just on the telegraph thing, how did it feel to kind of having met with people that pretend that they're one thing and then you find out actually it was something else? It must almost feel like you've been the victim of a confidence trickster or something. Well, the these things happen, you know, but you, nice things sometimes flow from horrid experiences. Uh, I mean, I had a letter from, uh, well, I can say now, he passed away very recently, Peregrine Warstone, former editor of the Sunday Telegraph, wrote to me and said, and I'd never met him before. And he said, uh, dear Mr. Rivkin, I'm writing to say how horrified I am by the behavior of the newspaper that I used to work for. And then he ended up by saying, he was 91 at the time, he ended up by saying, if you think my handwriting, because it was a handwritten letter, is very shaky, it is not because of my age, but because I'm shaking with rage. And when, I, uh, when we eventually got the result of the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner inquiry, which completely slated the telegraph and vindicated me, I was obviously very relieved about that, um, a former editor, another person who was former editor, I'm not going to mention his name, um, but you can probably guess, a uh, former editor of the Daily Telegraph, sent me an email which simply said, hooray. <laughs> so I think a lot of people associated with the Telegraph were rather ashamed of the way the, the, the then newspaper was, was behaving. It wasn't just me. I mean, they, 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 if you remember, there was a quite separate controversy over parliamentary expenses when a lot of what they did was actually very valuable work, but they also uh, destroyed the reputation of a lot of decent MPs with unfair evidence, it wasn't real evidence with exaggerated stuff. So they went through a very nasty phase, which I hope they've grown out of. I just finally wanted to ask you, obviously your son Hugo will be known to many listeners of this uh, podcast for his work at the Times. 
You're also related to the DJ music producer, Mark Ronson. Uh, you're his second cousin once removed. Um, do you know him well? Does he, does he DJ at family Christmases? No, I believe I have met him once at a, at a family, some sort of family event, <laughs> a major event about 20 years ago, when before anybody had ever heard of him, and he probably hadn't heard of me. Uh, so, yes, there is a link. Um, but uh, sadly, I'm not very happy to meet him, but uh, uh, we've never crossed paths and uh, we have a slightly different uh, priorities in life. <laughs> yes, maybe. And you're related to Leon Britton as well. He was a personal friend. Uh, he, again, not close. Um, it's something like my grandmother or grandfather was his grandfather's cousin. I mean, there was a family link, but he wasn't a close relative. He was a kinsman, I think it's proper phrase but we got to know each other many years ago and actually became good friends regardless of the family connection but it's a remarkable family tree that has you three in it well i'm not sure about that i mean <laughs> you think of a lot of more a lot more political i mean none of them you know, in terms of my immediate family i mean the last thing hugo would ever want to do is be a member of parliament the last thing i'd ever want to do is be a journalist so, yeah. <laughs> malcolm <laughs> this has been an absolute pleasure thank you so much it's been a pleasure for me as well. Take care. Well, there you go, Malcolm Rifkin. I re- you know what? And I've thought this so often during these ones that I've recorded over Zoom during the lockdown, but particularly with Malcolm today, I was like, this is insane that we're not doing this in front of an audience at the other palace. This really felt, I was like, I should be having a, and I never drink during the podcast, by the way, or indeed the week before it, but I was like, this really feels like I should be sat with him on the stage, topping up a whiskey, and just talking for hours, like into the night. I was like, we should be finishing this at about two in the morning. Oh, man. I loved every second of that. And I had to let him go because it was just rude to keep him. But I was like, oh, man. I could have done an hour just on the Channel Tunnel stuff, let alone Ireland, Bosnia. Thatcher and Major, you know, the different... You could get 10 episodes out of Malcolm Rifkin. And maybe one day, maybe one day I will. Um, But for now, this is the only episode I've done with him. And what a treat it was. Um, So thank you for downloading this. And I hope, you know, wherever you live in the UK now, things are getting... Well, it's been entirely serious the whole time. But, you know, um, more restrictions are coming in. So I just hope wherever you are, wherever you listen to this, around the world indeed, um, that you're coping okay, that this podcast helps. And maybe, maybe indeed a book might help, which is out now. The book is now out. It, it was publication day uh, on Thursday the 8th of October. So by the time you listen to this, that'll be yesterday. And when I'm recording this, it's today. That's been one of the best days of my life. I can't, I never thought I'd write a book and then all of a sudden it's out there and people are saying nice things about it and people are buying it. And uh, I just, for those of you that have, bought it thank you very much oh i'm doing a book launch next week on the 13th of october with alistair campbell is hosting it he's interviewing me for once you can buy tickets to that um i've put a link in the blurb um and there's two links one which includes a signed copy of the book and one if you've already bought the book or indeed and you're perfectly within your rights to not want to own it um if you just want to go to the event so that's uh, the 13th of october at 7 p.m alistair campbell interviewing me about my book um But I've had a lot of messages today from people who listen to the podcast. So thank you. Um, It really does mean a great deal. Thank you. Uh, You can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. The book, I imagine, would be up your street. um, But that's enough uh, self-promotion for now. Uh, If you can as well, leave it an iTunes review uh, to help other people find the show. It does help. Thank you to all of those of you that have. So um, what a treat of an episode that was, eh? Um, I feel like we all need a a long sit down now just to 
just to take all that history in and all that political uh, uh, analysis and all that political uh, judgment. Um, so there you go. I shall. I'm, I'm just rambling now. I'll, I shall have to get on. Um, but thank you for downloading this. If you bought the book from the bottom of my heart, genuinely, thank you so much. And um, well, I'll see you next week. Ta-ra. Thank you.